We came for salvation. We came for family. We came for all that's good. That's how we'll walk away. Aloha. Welcome to the Layman's Lounge podcast. Today we're talking with Greg Parker Jr., who is the editor and translator of the recently released book from Herman Bovink called What is Christianity? Hey, brother, can you give us a survey of his theological books? So you've got like, like Ivory Tower, four volumes, dogmatics, then you sort of start Wonderful Works of God, which has some other name. And then there's like Guidebook, which you're also in. And then there's this one, What is Christianity, which is like the lowest as it were. So can you give us a little overview of, of the deep waters and shallow waters? Yeah, certainly. Uh, so so Bavink was uh, a figure. Most of your listeners will have probably some awareness of him because I think you've had James, John Bolt, and Bruce Pass all on. Um, but he was a figure who lived from 1854 to 1921. And uh, he didn't really bleed into uh, the English-speaking world directly for a long time. So he did come to America twice, um, and he he did give a series of kind of lectures all across America. So Americans in general kind of had some uh, awareness or knowledge of him. Um, but he really had his, I guess, revival uh, from 2008 to 2013, uh, in which his reform dogmatics were translated. and uh, And that was kind of how the modern conception of of Bavink was that he was this reformed uh, dogmatician, kind of this academic ivory tower figure who's just kind of removed from, uh, I guess, the church or really kind of any kind of popular level uh, thinking about him. Um, and, and Cameron Clausing and I have really tried to make an effort to get at the more pastoral Bavink or the Bavink who has his eye on uh, the church. Um, and so you've seen a little bit of this uh, in that the wonderful works of God came out in like 1954 or 56 with Henry Zilstra, uh, but then it kind of uh, died into obscurity until most recently the Westminster Seminary Press guys um, uh, republished that. But so Reform Dogmatics is really meant for the academic if you're super serious about uh, theology and uh, you want to uh, kind of have your head hurt at the end of the day. Uh, that would be the tome to go to. Um, if I had to recommend a way to read it, I wouldn't suggest going with volume one first because that's so <laughs> kind of philosophical. I think you'll get a lot more out of it jumping into volume, volume two. Volume ones are always the worst. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, he wrote Wonderful Works of God. Um, so he did two editions of Reform Dogmatics. Uh, and really by the end of the time he was done editing his second edition, uh, he wrote The Wonderful Works of God or Magnalia Day. Uh, and I think this came out in like 1909, I want to say. I could be wrong about that date. Um, all the dates are starting to like just blend together. <laughs> um, and this was really meant for the kind of educated layperson. Uh, it's still a behemoth of a book. Yeah. Uh, so if you need a doorstopper, uh, paperweight, or maybe something to like, you know, throw at your dog, that's like the book because uh, it's it's so big. Um, and then... Uh, most recently, Cameron Clausing and I translated Guidebook for Instruction in the Christian Religion, and uh, and and you'll have us back to talk about that some other time. Yeah. yeah. Um, but that book is really a further condensation of uh, the wonderful works of God. So you have Reform Dogmatics, this academic scholarly tome, and then the wonderful works of God meant for like the educated layperson, 
and then guidebook for instruction in the Christian religion is really meant uh, for the the kind of high schooler. So he intended it to be a part of like religion curriculum in the gymnasium uh, or like the Dutch equivalent of high school, um, trying to fill out kind of like a needed or a felt need in their education. Um, but there's a lot or a significant uh, overlap between Magnalia Day and Guidebook for Instruction in the Christian Religion. Um, but so we we're really fond of it. Uh, and then I, in the midst of uh, translating that work, um, I kind of stumbled across what is Christianity in his um, uh, in his corpus, and and recognized that you know what this probably goes or, or pairs really well with it. And uh, I couldn't strong arm Cam into translating it with me, so I just uh, kind of uh, went off on my own track and and did it. Um, how much, and do this, you know like how many? copies okay so if the wonderful works of god was for like a high schooler who was what is christianity aimed at and do we know like how it sold you know i, I don't know if that's like an eglinton question yeah. like you know, did yeah. a so so the wonderful works of god would be more so for like the college educated person guidebook for the high schooler okay. and then what is christianity uh, so it, it was originally a part of this um so there are two essays in there and the first essay was a part of this series uh, called Great Religions. Uh, and I think it's a publisher that Bavink only published with once. Um, but essentially, it's this series that was kind of giving the Dutch public an opportunity to learn about the various religions that were on the, in the public sphere. So actually, his, his buddy, Snook Hergranya, did the one on Islam. So there is some, oh, cool. uh, I guess he has some familiarity with the series already. Um, but it's really, it's kind of meant for the public popular level. Uh, I don't know if he has an intended uh, age in mind yeah. as much as maybe someone who doesn't really know much about Christianity and kind of a, a brief introduction to it. So you translated this thing like, so what are you working with? You got like one old copy of it. You got a PDF. I'm just curious, like, are you yeah. in like some dusty old mahogany <laughs> room, like with a quill or like what's, no? So I, I think somewhere up there, I may have moved it into my other in the office at the school. But yeah, I, I ended up purchasing an old dusty copy of it. Did you um, really? More, more so as like a little keepsake. Um, yeah. But it's it's available online. It's a PDF. So I was kind of referencing that PDF primarily. Um, How much but was the, the original one? I want to say it was like maybe 16 US dollars and then a little what? bit for shipping. Yeah, it wasn't too bad. And uh, and actually on on that cover there's a little bit of floral which is why that there's the floral on uh, oh, on this okay. cover it's not it's not the same exact um, design but we're trying to I tried no, to be good I'm glad Hendrix they did like a good design there's nothing worse than a great like book which just like bust busted like oh. the what is it like I don't even know what's called like whip in stock or something like that W mm -hmm. they always have these great books with like the worst cover art I'm like oh just just outsource to some kid in college like give him some credits yeah. and he'll churn out something better anyways right. well i yeah. uh i know the people at whip and stock so i'm going to be very uh political and say that i love what they're doing over there and i appreciate them um but i was really pleased with the effort that uh hendrickson put into this and um, I was uh, maybe a bit prima donna, and then I gave them a long list of uh, of demands about what I wanted uh, the cover to look like, and uh, and I think um, Carol Carol Bailey was the designer, and uh, and I thought she slayed it, so I'm really happy with it. There's a lot of, as you know, like 
everybody love and Bob Inc and Kuiper and Skilder maybe. And there is a lot of like, there's always been the talk of, you know, like the two Bob Inks and then like his supposed drift towards liberalism and unhitching from, you know, maybe theology or whatever, you know, all these different things, which maybe Eglinton kind of clear up and a few others. That said, is there anything even from this little work that like provided more like just more ammunition to how that's a bunch of hogwash or mm. um, anything that we can nuance like you that he really sort of drove home and you're like, no, man, like, look at how much he camped out on the scriptures here or something like that. Right. Yeah, I think over the past uh, maybe two or three years of of my reading of Bavink, and of course, I've been influenced by James because he's my doctoral supervisor. Um, I've been remarkably maybe shocked with Bobbing's consistency across his lifetime. So I, I think that's one of the cool things about this awesome. his book is the second essay in there is from 1883. And the, the first essay, if you're reading kind of uh, through the book, uh, is from 1912. Um, and if you compare the two, there's a ton of harmony between the two. Uh, and you kind of really see that that Bavink is being really thoughtful across his lifetime about the way that he's presenting Christianity. Um, one of the themes that I, I think I draw out in the introduction is that uh, Bavink kind of envisions the the task of theology uh, as one that's indexed by Romans eleven thirty six. Mm. So all things are from, through, and to Him, mm. and to Him be the glory. Uh, and you really get that kind of. Um, that kind of idea of how the task of theology is to be done in, in both of these. Mm. Um, and so I think that's, yeah, the consistency of Bavink across his lifetime is, is sort of, I guess, my uh, addition to this uh, two Bavink's hypothesis conversation that uh, uh, infiltrated Bavink studies for a time. I'm going to hit you with a, a quote from the first chapter. He says, okay. this difficult task could perhaps be accomplished today if there were some agreement on the matter of self, like in the context of what is Christianity, um, mm -hmm. that is on the origin and essence of Christianity, but precisely the opposite is true, end quote. So where does he arrive? And I know everyone's got their thoughts, but where does he arrive even here as the essence? Like in this book, if you, if you don't read anything else, you're like, oh, the essence of Christianity. Let me tell you what it is from what is Christianity. What, what's he going to say it is? Yeah, so there's there's kind of two uh, different conversations he's having there in that, in one sense, he's participating in a historic discussion, right? So at the turn of the 20th century, all of these theologians were kind of wrestling with this this question of what is the essence of Christianity. Uh, so he's on, on one side saying, all right, all these people have different ideas of what it means to uh or what what christianity really is if you know get down to the kernel of it uh, and on the other side he's really trying to demonstrate uh that christianity is inherently a, a diverse religion so there there are there is a unity in diversity within christianity uh, and you kind of see that across his historic retelling right when he gets into eastern orthodox and rome and uh, luther and zwingli and, and so on and so forth um so he's he's trying to uh, kind of participate in this discussion where he's saying a lot of people have an idea of what the essence of Christianity is. And for Bavink, uh, he really is trying to put before us that the person of Christ is Christianity itself. Uh, and that is a very kind of loaded uh, theological idea for him. Uh, as you kind of see in, I think it's chapter two, uh, he really tries to flesh out that he really does mean that Christ 
is fully human and fully God in one person. And it is this person uh, that is uh, historically revealed in the scriptures that he sees as uh, the content of Christianity. Um, now he's going to kind of nuance that more uh, in, in both of the essays uh, to try to put that within a triune framework. Uh, but he really sees kind of Christ as the starting point of what uh, Christianity is. When you were raising your hand, getting all fired up in that response, I do I what is that a Carhartt shirt? What kind of shirt am I seeing over there? On it is you? a Carhartt. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. What kind so. of like? What kind of is like? Would would Bavink be a Carhartt shirt kind of guy? Like, <laughs> I think uh -huh. Kuiper would be a um. What's that one called? <laughs> what's that one called? As I'm trying to remember, what kind of what kind of guy would Bavink be? You know, yeah, that's that's tough because I think every every image I've ever seen of him, he's pretty dressed to the nines. Um, so if if Bavink were inhabiting today, uh, I suppose that uh, my guess is that he'd be a little bit more uh, prim and proper than than Kuiper. But I, I'm not sure if that that's just probably my own opinion. I, I see Kuiper as such a a boisterous uh figure that he, he almost comes across disheveled to me <laughs> Whereas... Ooh, he'd probably like make his own shirt he'd make his own t-shirts like <laughs> right. super punk rock like get stencils and like spray spray paint right yeah well he'd, he'd probably own his own t-shirt printing company um, and just like uh, i think is it you who sells the the kuiper coffee yeah or, uh, <laughs> yep mm -hmm. he would sling it yeah because i mean didn't he own like you know owner some connection with some breweries probably just rocking the uh the Ooh, micro I, brewery gear i, I can see him getting into that i mean neo-calvinism as a a culture there's uh they did have like a, a feasting or, or banquet uh kind of idea uh in the underbelly of their culture where they like to gather and have these meals uh there's an awesome book by george harink uh, that kind of looks at some of these neo-calvinist menus uh, and I would love for for him or someone to translate into English just because it would be such a cool like neo-Calvinist uh, coffee are you, book. Are you saying, I've never heard this, are you saying like neo-Calvinist like, you know, since Kuiper and Bobby, there's this culture where they would come together and gather and feast and, and hang out? Yeah, and yeah. Really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll, have to, uh, I'll have to find the name of the book and send That's it to you because awesome. it says... It's such a cool book because it has like all these uh, these different menus that uh, either students were making or uh, kind of these neo-Calvinist societies were making and then people would sign the back of the menus. But uh, yeah, oh, it's I a really cool that. book. Yeah. yeah, you learned something. Oh, that's mm -hmm. good. Okay. Um, he, he's uh, so bobbing in this book. He starts not with theology in this essay, the first one, but history. And then here's a mm -hmm. quote. Anyone who gave a short and therefore unsatisfactory account of this history, Christianity, would have accomplished only a small part of the tasks that had been assigned to him in describing Christianity. Um, and so, I mean, he hits like history, history, but also even like sort of biblical history, like the history of salvation, which um, I mean, he started with like, I, it's been a while since I read it now, I forget, like maybe there's a few few pages where he sets up but then he gets to like john the baptist and literally mm -hmm. like unfolds everything and i i kind of loved it i i for sure came to the book thinking he's gonna be out he's gonna give me thematic like thematically you know like with themes i know you even talk about rowan williams you kind of contrast them but i thought mm -hmm. for sure it'd be like 
creation man you know the cultural mandate i for sure thought that and i wanted it to be honest <laughs> but i loved it he he kind of blew my mind and it just read uh, neo-calvinists or flaming liberals it's insane to me <laughs> so anyways i loved reading that what, what do you what are your thoughts on how he unfolded it yeah so i i likewise found it uh really fascinating that he really begins with this idea of history. Uh, my my buddy and, and co-translator on, on the other bobbing volumes, Cameron Clausing, uh, a portion of his dissertation is kind of devoted to unfurling Bobbing's uh, interest in history. So I don't want to say too much about it other than- Ooh, still a thunder. Um, <laughs> exactly. Um, and, and you should all definitely uh, buy his book when it comes out with Oxford University Press. Um, it will only be 320 bucks. Yeah, at, at least, yeah. Um, but as long as you finish off paying your car, uh, you can just get it right after that one. Um, so I think it's really interesting that Bob Fink begins with the history of Christianity and kind of moves uh, maybe downhill towards its essence. Um, the fascination with the uh, history, I think, is kind of an argument that he's drawing from Augustine. So in, in Book 22 of Augustine's The City of God, uh, he kind of talks about how remarkable it is uh, that these kind of unlearned Christians or unlearned pagans were converted to Christianity and part of this revolution uh, that totally changed society and that it all hinged on their belief in the resurrection and ascension of Christ. And uh, what Augustine really tries to draw out there is that uh, kind of the craziness of these unlearned pagans uh, transforming the world uh, merits that Christianity is looked at and that we take it seriously, kind of the, the question yeah. of it or the the idea of it happening. Um, and I think Bob is kind of drawing on that, saying we need to really take seriously that that Christianity did radically transform uh, the world and that it has a particular kind of history. And you're right, he does start with pretty much with John the Baptist and this call uh, of the kingdom of God. Uh, and he gives Christ a very particular place uh, in that kingdom. Uh, that Bro, he is I a, loved a, that he hit the kingdom. So yeah, like he did sort of, he goes John the Baptist and then Jesus birth, baptism keeps going story. And then he, you know, he weaves in his little, his theology, but it's really, I forgot. I'm actually reading some Irenaeus book right now. I forgot what it's nice. called, but it's like exactly the same thing. It's just oh, like, very cool. I'm mm -hmm. like, whoa. I love it. I'm gonna look at these faithful guys and it. It just sounds like I forget, like Peter and Acts, you know, they're just right. They're just recap. Give me a little history. And mm -hmm. it kind of fits. It just seems right. But my question for you is, and you, you said it, so it wasn't me, but you mentioned you, you went out of your way to mention his touching on the kingdom. And I, I saw that too. And I thought kingdom is so 2003 in Christianity, <laughs> right? We're uh -huh. so over that. Now we're about flourishing, right? Is that the mm -hmm. newest one? What, what so. are some of the things we're about? I think we're about flourishing these days or the mm -hmm. story. Anyways, the kingdom, he hit the kingdom. Yeah. Like, is that something we see often in Bob Inc or what, what popped out to you on that? Uh, I mean, he, he does give, uh, I think, a significant place to the kingdom of God in his theology, a really early essay of his uh, it's about the kingdom of God as the highest good. And uh, and you, you almost have to question why he's making the kingdom of God the highest good, because uh, in the rest of his theology, he kind of talks about God as the highest good. Yeah. Uh, and so one reading of it could be to kind of place those two into contradiction. 
uh, or uh, I think a more positive reading would see that uh, actually in the beatific vision, we are participating in the kingdom of God. And mm-hmm. so there's no, um, no contradiction between the kingdom of God is the highest good and God is the highest good. Uh, but in this, in this work in particular, he really does accord to Christ a special place in the kingdom of God as a, a prophet who testifies of himself and his kingdom, uh, as a king who brings about or ushers in his kingdom, uh, and as a priest who really avails himself to his people. Uh, and as he moves kind of out of the Gospels and into the, the rest of the epistles and the rest of the New Testament uh, before he launches into church history, uh, he really is trying to hold the organism of Scripture together, saying we, we, can't, we can't pit the Jesus of Paul against the Jesus of the Gospels. And so he's, he's really trying to, I think, connect them a little bit over that uh, kingdom idea. I love that he hit that. I'm a, I actually wrote the quote that, that connects that connection. Here it is. The word that Jesus spoke was, was the same as John. Um, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God, God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Um, i.e. the kingdom of God, Mark one fifteen. Mm-hmm. That was the theme of his teaching. I'm going to say it, that was the theme of his teaching, but he mm-hmm. worked it out more comprehensively and de- deeply than John or any of the prophets before him possibly could. So anyways, uh, I thought that was good. Not many people, I don't know, as far as what I read, I feel like not many people hit that. Like N.T. Wright kind of hits that. It's To me, it's such an mm-hmm. obvious thing, right? Well, what's the, what's the connection? We're always hearing about kingdom and then not so much. So that was cool um yeah we already hit my next question i want to ask you we already hit but it was just about how i thought it was really interesting that he didn't start with anthropology or like the the telos of of man i I don't know i didn't like it part of part of me though too (laughs) i I like love the the uh i don't know it so in like contrast, you're saying with like uh, with guidebook or Magnolia Day, which both start with like, what is the highest good yeah, of man? Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know what to think about that or like, I don't know. Have you thought that um, too? Did you have any things? Um, I mean, I, I still think he's consciously uh, utilizing Augustine um, and that that kind of idea of highest good is definitely Augustinian. Uh, so it didn't. It didn't strike me as like, why isn't he starting in the same place as the others, these other books? Because um, I think, you know, uh, yeah, maybe he'd become a, a, like John Piper, who like every book of his is, you know, almost the same, uh, not to rag on on Piper. Um, but so, so I think uh, Bobnik has a kind of particular task that he's aiming to set out. And he does have a kind of the existential angst of, of um I think I call it the Bavinkian soul or the August, Augustinian soul, uh, particularly in that sixth chapter uh, where he's engaging with modern culture and kind of suggesting, hey, but like you're all still pretty restless because culture, uh, science, are they're not actually uh, answering the questions that you have or really yeah. satisfying you. Um, so I think he's still getting around to that uh, kind of psychological or anthropological uh, point. He's just not beginning there. So he sort of moves through the book historically like just formation of the world as it were and kingdoms and power and then of course the sort of like just even the bible like the new testament unfolds and then he gets into the two natures of christ Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, why 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 are we here why did why does he hit this book (laughs) of all the things like he hits me with the two natures of christ yeah well i think this is really the confession that he sees unifying the church uh, so he'll he'll rag on a bunch of other uh, kind of uh, 
denominations are kind of split into how the church itself has become diverse, uh, mm. kind of that other side of uh, of the, the two sides that I was talking about earlier in this essence of Christianity conversation, right? You had all the modern scholars trying to say, no, we can kind of get behind scripture to the kernel, mm. but then he also wants to honor the diversity of the church. Yeah. Uh, and he really is kind of honoring it in a way by pointing to what it is unified in. And it's unified in this, this two natures of Christ and in, in one person. Mm -hmm. uh, and then as he works out the diversity, uh, really this, uh, I guess, ecumenical Christ uh, or ecumenical uh, Christianity that um, uh, James and, and Cam and I have all talked about as uh, kind of being moving to the forefront of the discussion yeah. Uh, in his latter years, uh, you really see that here because he's he's not really ragging on uh, the Eastern Orthodox or attacking totally. uh, Rome or Luther. I mean, he's willing to kind of point out uh, the differences. Yeah, uh, I mean, and he does talk about uh, Rome's kind of danger to uh, uh, lead towards stagnation or regression, and he does yeah. point out in the Eastern Orthodox Church that there's there's too much of this fixation on mystery or feeling. So yeah. it's not that he's unwilling to critique them, but that's that's not really uh, the purpose of this book uh, for this Bro, book. Right. If it's Bobby written... is a sweetheart. He's so, <laughs> when I read it, I'm like, I can't even mm -hmm. like, like you brought up Piper and I just wanted to be, I just wanted to slam Piper. And I'm and like, <laughs> I'm and Bobby was like a sweetheart, man. There was butterfly butterflies coming off the pages. I'm like, how is he not just, <laughs> he didn't shred yeah. anyone, but, but yeah. still he like acknowledged whack. Well, you have to kind of recognize the audience, right? Uh, so, so the reason that Bavink moves in this more ecumenical direction uh, is because he kind of recognizes or acknowledges that culture is really shifting around him. Uh, and if he writes this book, right, where he just kind of says, well, no, you can only be a Christian if you belong to my Dutch Reformed church tradition. The rest of you are not Christians. And then that gets like put out into the public sphere. Um, what the the public is going to kind of acknowledge or see is like oh like christianity itself really doesn't know how to deal with any of its disagreements yeah. um and so yeah. bavink is willing to say like well like listen there are christ there are lutheran christians right there are eastern orthodox christians there are there are catholic yeah. christians yeah. uh and so he's just trying to present uh maybe in the most um broad sense a reformed catholic uh christianity to uh, the general public. And that's not to say that he doesn't kind of favor or, or tip his hat to Calvinism, right? He yeah. definitely kind of lets you know, like, well, I, you know, I do like this one the most. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. So at this point in the book, you know, we're hitting it now, he goes on to like, he sort of reviews Eastern Orthodoxy and then, and then Rome, but he mm -hmm. hits Rome long. Mm -hmm. He's, he's at Rome a long time. And I think, I think the issues he takes with Rome in that book is like hierarchy and lack of um like assurance or you know mm -hmm. something like that any thoughts there yeah so I, I think he kind of has maybe some more pastoral concerns in mind yeah. uh so i i kind of see him drawing out uh maybe the main distinctions that he perceives between protestants and rome mm -hmm. uh, which is that uh, we have an entirely different anthropology Right, the way that we view the image of God and redemption occurring, uh, there's a strong distinction there between nature and grace for Rome and Protestants. Uh, he yeah. sees the ecclesiology as being entirely different, 
uh, right? He sees them as really emphasizing the institution of the church at the kind of the neglect of the organism of the church. And it's, it's kind of one of the weird things he brings up with Luther is he almost like credits Luther with the organism of the church. Yeah. Um, so that kind of stuck out to me. Um, totally. And then uh, and then likewise, yeah, assurance. Uh, he's he's really keen to kind of point out that there there's different ways of approaching it. And so they're all they're all kind of pastoral concerns. He's not uh just wiping everything under the rug he is yeah. letting you know that he has concerns but you're right there are some butterflies in the air <laughs> i'm kind of a i'm kind of a crypto lutheran these days and so <laughs> i love the way it, it you know it might be like if you know someone might like oh do i look do i look fat in the fat in this dress and you're like yeah you look enormous but you would never say it so i don't know if he's like oh luther was so cool but the way he talked about it, I really appreciated. Um, but he, I mean, I guess his engagement. What, what can you tell us about his? What, what he thought the the gospel according to Luther wasn't like what's the I don't know like robust. That's pretty gospel coalition of me to use that word, but <laughs> it wasn't like I don't, know, I don't know. It was just more like saving your soul or whatever. What? Yeah. So the, what, the, what is what was his diagnosis on Luther, even though he kind of loved him or whatever? Yeah. So the strongest, I think, uh, uh, or the insights that he thought Luther brought were kind of the authority of Scripture over the authority of the church. Uh, he thought that Luther uh, really redefined uh, what it meant to be a believer in in this kind of expansion of the priesthood of all believers, or mm -hmm. Uh, kind of what I tipped my hat to as the organism of the church. Uh, and then he did think that there was some sort of reformation of the ethical life. So this movement towards uh, kind of faith being applied to the public sphere. Um, but he really thought that Luther uh, didn't do that third point as purely, and which is where kind of Calvinism really uh, captures more holistically this, this combination of the religious and ethical life or the, the transformation of your head and heart, but then also the transformation of all of society. Um, so he sees kind of Luther as deficient there and, and Calvinism as really capturing that. Oh my gosh, I'm gonna go off the rails here a little bit. I don't know <laughs> I don't know if you've read much Luther, all these Lutheran guys or whatever. By the way, I only started reading them because there is like a, a former young restless reform rapper named Flame. I don't know if you ever okay. heard of no, I haven't. That, but, mm -hmm. but he became like, you know, card carrying like Lutheran bootlicker. Mm -hmm. And um, he's like, which is fine because I'm a bootlicker like Kuiper. <laughs> um, but he was like, we all revere the Holy Luther, but we never read him. And I was like, ooh, I think I had only read like his Galatians commentary or something. Uh -huh. And I started reading Luther. And I was like, oh man, this guy's good. You know, he's. Mm -hmm he's just a, he's like a chump like me. He's just like, you hear about his family, you know, like with Calvin, like was Calvin even married? Who knows? You don't even get to hear about his family. Right. But, uh, you know, we get that with Kuiper though. Kuiper, Cause Kuiper's he's also, he's cool too. Um, anyways, <laughs> what do you, what do you personally think of, of his, of sort of his, his, his issues with Lutheranism as, as far as it might not like, um, infiltrate culture or whatever, because from the Lutherans that I've read, even though you've got this two kingdom thing and all these all kinds of theological labels, I don't know. At the end of the day, when I read like some of these Luther Lutherans, I could totally see this two I don't know, this two kinds of righteousness. You know, you're righteous before God, but not your neighbor. And then 
you know, and the masks of God were loving our neighbor or whatever. So anyways, I, I know I'm taking off a random tangent, but <laughs> do you have any commentary on that? Do you think, do you think the Lutherans got it a little bit right and he was a little bit wrong or I'm sure yeah. I'm missing something. I, I probably don't know enough about Lutheranism uh, in the Netherlands at the time uh, to really comment on whether oh, or that's not. that's true. It would be Netherlands, like Dutch Lutheranism. I didn't right. think about that part. <laughs> uh, so it's it's potential that, or he, he could be reading, uh, you know, other Christians really poorly in his um, surrounding areas. But mm -hmm. I'm assuming with how well he kind of read culture to begin with, uh, he's, he's probably spot on to what he's seeing in, in Lutheranism mm. in his time. Uh, as for our own time, I'll, I'll read that or leave that uh, up to you to uh, an analyze. <laughs> no, you can leave that up to um, Flame the Rapper. All right. <laughs> Listeners, go listen to Flame. Um, <laughs> he says, uh, Flame says, you know, all these Lutherans say, is means is like this is my body right that's her thing so that's my segue right. into, this, into this next question he hits he hits luther calvin and zwingli and i'm like mm -hmm. why does he actually to be honest i don't understand what his issue i don't even know why he brings zwingli in here can you explain what what's he's got to say about zwingli yeah, so he, he's trying to kind of touch on the three main uh, directions that Protestantism goes in. Uh, so Luther is really the catalyst for the Reformation. Uh, Zwingli was, of course, the the topic of his dissertation. Uh, and so he's going to give us a little bit of Zwingli. Zwingli. But then Calvin really is his uh, who he's fascinated with mm. um, over the second half of his life, um, especially like, you know, going back and forth between his uh, or his two trips to America, um, all of those speeches somehow engage with with Calvin in some way. Mm. Um, so I, I don't see him doing anything particularly special here with Zwingli, okay. uh, other than tracing out kind of the history of the church. I think his real fascination is with kind of Luther's role in that. And then, okay, uh, that makes me feel better. I'm like, what? what are we saying about Zwingli right here? Right. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was a, maybe a name drop. Okay. Um, you had referenced it before, but he returns to often, like, I think, especially in Catholicism, the opposition of nature and grace. And, you know, mm -hmm. that's it. That's everyone's favorite part of bobbing. But can you give, <laughs> uh, I just love that, man. Can you just touch on that a little bit? Yeah. So, uh, so he sees nature and grace as not opposed to each other, but grace actually restores nature and brings it towards uh, its final end. Uh, this kind of idea of nature and grace is a, a much more of a discussion in uh, in Catholic thought than it is in, in Protestant thought anymore. Uh, but I I do think it is one of the ways that Bavink really contrasts himself with Catholic thought. So some will, will point to Bavink's use of nature and grace and say, look, you know, he's he's drawing upon Thomas here. And and I, I don't think that's quite accurate, because uh, if he is drawing upon Thomas, uh, it's it's kind of to make himself distinct from Thomas to say, like, actually, uh, a Protestant anthropology is, is totally distinct from uh, a Catholic anthropology. Um, and that gets flushed out uh, various different ways by even Catholics. Uh, you know, if, if you're talking about Thomas, you almost have to ask which Thomas, uh, because they have different ways of reading uh, the various ends of grace and the various ends of nature. Um, but I really see Bavink as, uh, here at least, uh, uh, 
uh, and in his uh, reform dogmatics, uh, kind of distinguishing himself on with, from Catholics there. So you full on had to learn Dutch, right? Yep, like you, yeah. you, you speak Dutch now. Well, to some degree. So, I mean, uh, uh, it's probably the, the deficit of doing, uh, learning dead languages first. So learning Greek and Hebrew and seminary, those are languages that you don't speak. Yeah. And so, uh, when I learned Dutch, uh, I didn't really learn how to speak it, uh, right. per se. And when I was in the Netherlands in Compen, uh, like kind of like trying to speak it or interacting with like friends, <laughs> children's. Uh, they were really like, like you sound like my dead grandparents. Yeah, like, they're you know, the like, equivalent like, of "Harken, like, come unto me, right. child." Uh, and part <laughs> of that is because uh, in the 1940s, uh, the Dutch uh, language went through all these shifts, uh, mm. sort of moving away from from German and, and trying to move towards English. Um, and so there were all these shifts in the Dutch language, and so Bavink's Dutch is really dated. Uh, and so that's partially why I sounded like a dead grandparent because they were like, you know, what do you, why are you speaking Shakespeare to me? You know? So now full disclosure, when I read it, I, I read, I read the book like on, on my Kindle, but it was, mm -hmm. it was like a pre PDF or something. I think right. anyways, so I actually didn't know it was two different essays. Right. Oh, so, nice. mm -hmm. and I think one was at the end. I just thought, he sort of like supplements like does a summary of now how does it apply to our day and age mm -hmm. but i notice on page 87 to 92 i don't know if that where that mm -hmm. is you don't have to look or anything but i mean bro bobbing gets stirred he's getting stirred here mm -hmm. like i could see a little some some fuego coming out from the pages this was something he's getting passionate about and it's like almost this contrast between Christianity in the world. And mm. it, it, oh my gosh, he was zealous here, getting me all stirred up because I'm, oh. I often, I don't realize how I think I'm all like super conservative guy or whatever, <laughs> you know, yeah. but I realized even I, I'm like, oh, am I just like being a Christian culture warrior? Like, like, you know, I self deprecating and I tell myself that, oh, Bobbing's having none of, Bobbing is having none of that that notion of a of this of a christian culture warrior first whatever if he would acknowledge that as a thing but he's not necessarily saying that's bad oh it's too hard there's too many strings attached there but anyways as far as this christianity in contrast to the world did you you, you see some some stoke in bob Inc. in this and and what what is and for the listeners who haven't read this man hook him in with this one because he got cooking here <laughs> so you're talking about the the second essay then in the christian I think, faith i think so let me see if i have a quote do i have a quote i think this is a quote from that section you, you ready okay. for this it might yep. not be but it hits the same thing yep um oh no this is from the 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 respite of christianity respite okay. i don't know but it's yeah. which is the last chapter so it's kind of like yep. either way it's where he sums up he says this he says uh how long and it's sort of a diagnosis on modernity i think yep. how long and how broad are the attacks undertaken against christianity and the accusations leveled against it and we got an exclamation point there i don't know if you carry that over no. or put it in <laughs> but regardless we got baffling with exclamation points right the scriptures of the old and new testaments are false 
forged, unreliable, and do not in the least give a true picture of the history of Israel or of the origin and earliest essence of Christianity. The life is, of Jesus is so obscured that nothing can be said with certainty. He may, well have, uh, he, may, he may well have existed as a historical person who is later idealized and, def and, and deified by the congregation, but it's also possible that he was entirely a product of religious fantasy. The church, which is named after him, is built on an error, namely the belief in his resurrection and throughout its history, both as regards its doctrine and its organization and service, has been one great aberration. Instead of being a blessing, it's been a curse for mankind through its divisions and disputes, through its persecutions and heretical trials. And we, I mean, we always hear this one. I was talking with someone yesterday. Oh, the genocide mm -hmm. from the Christians. Uh, through its suppression of all freedom and its opposition to all culture, its creed and doctrine are totally worthless <laughs> and in every respect in conflict with the results of science. Like he literally could have written that today. Even mm -hmm. Christian ethics and philanthropy are out of date and no longer fit for application in our social and political relations. In yeah. a word, Christianity has had its time. We have outgrown it completely. And we are, in so far, we are modern cultural people, no longer Christians, end quote. Woo! He's, mm -hmm. get, he's getting fired up. <clears throat> I lost my voice as long quote. Hopefully I don't get in trouble from Hendrix in for doing such a long part, but yeah, long quote fired up. Perfect diagnosis still applies today. And then it, it is a, this is this context of the world and Christianity. So I'm not sure. Yeah. I'll just end with this part. What is, what does Bob Inc. have to say about the world and Christianity diagnosis and maybe prescription? Yeah, so I think there he's he's trying to summarize uh, what you might hear in a normal I don't know cafe. What what are people saying about Christianity? Yeah. Uh, and that's not to say that there's not some truth in the things that people are saying, uh, but he's really going to circle back around throughout that chapter and to identify that all of those things that uh, kind of we're looking to culture to provide us with or to satisfy us with. Um, ultimately are, are not satisfying us and that religion is a, uh, a central to what it means to be human. Uh, and this is really kind of the uh, Augustinian arc of the book and that he's really going to point us saying or point us to Christ and say there in Christ, in uh, the God of scripture, uh, you have one where you can rest. You have one where you can find enjoyment. You have one uh, where souls can find uh uh, just pleasure and joy and satisfaction. Um, and part of his diagnosis to kind of backtrack uh, of what he sees in Dutch culture was not altogether kind of uncommon for the culture itself. Uh, so in the Netherlands at this time, you also had uh, kind of people talking about it as a sleepy culture, uh, meaning uh, no one was really uh, pursuing life with much rigor. Uh, and you also had folks talking about like Schopenhauer in particular, uh, this philosopher, Arthur Schopenhauer. Um, he had this world philosophy called Weltschmerz, which is like world misery or world pain. Uh, so people were talking about uh, religion is not really satisfying them, but in general, uh, the whole world was talking about the culture as not being satisfying, that it was just this malaise uh, is what Charles Taylor would call it this mm. this world misery that life is just really not offering anything. Mm. Uh, Schopenhauer would say it uh, even stronger that he would say uh, if you got to the end of your life, 
Uh, and someone asked you, would you like to live your life over again? Schopenhauer was convinced that most humans living during this time would say, no, I, I, I do not want to live my life over again. Um, so it's not just that Bavink is, uh, uh, so Bavink's kind of summary of both. Okay, so people are, tank, tell, talk, uh, are telling you this about Christianity, but then his diagnosis of like, hey, well, actually, you know, if you look at science, if you look at culture, if you look at art, uh, you know, it, that's not satisfying you either. And so you need to kind of reassess and kind of look at the overarching question of his, his book yeah. is, is what do you make of Christ? Right. And so as yeah. he kind of leads you back to that question, yeah. if we acknowledge that Christ is the savior, the one who atoned for the world, the one who is both God and man, here is one who can actually offer you rest. Mm -hmm. Here is one who can bring you satisfaction in a world of dissatisfaction. Mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of where he's, uh, the string he's finally pulling through to the end there. You know? Bro, it's been good. We're going to have you guys on a little bit down the road, probably not very far. I know you got some stuff up your sleeve with like Bavink and sanctification. I think it's sanctification. Is that what you're hitting? Is that what you're working uh, on? So, yeah, sort of. So my, my, uh, yeah, I've, I've submitted my dissertation, going to defend it in July. Uh, I was looking at the relationship between Bavink's dogmatics and his, his ethics. Uh, sanctification is a part of that. Mm -hmm. um, but the the project itself is a little broader now. So I, I looked at all kinds of things oh, yeah. within Bavink. Well, you could yeah. send that my way and I'll, I'll make sure all your <laughs> Latin is correct. Um, well, thank you. Brother, thanks for joining us. I appreciate it. Thanks for not being um, like a boring old, like, grouchy theologian guy who's disconnected from the world like you have a beard <laughs> you have some random picture hanging on your wall and i think yeah, yeah, well, how old are you brother little, little tame impala um <laughs> uh well i mean i think the beard doesn't necessarily make me uh grouchy there were, there were plenty of uh theologians who were uh academic ivory scholars who had beers but uh, beards um i'm 31 okay brother yeah, we appreciate yeah. How, how, old, how old are you I'm 27. No, I'm sorry. I'm 42. There you go. Yeah. So you're, good. you're a young dude, too. I feel all right. Anyways, hey, man, this was a very good chat. Thanks for your time. Yeah, no problem at all. Thanks for having me. We came for salvation. We came for family. We came for all that's good. That's how we'll walk away. We came to break the bad, we came to cheer the sad, we came to...